When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Einstein. James Dean. Brooklyn's got a winning team. Davy Crockett. Ah, king of the wild frontier. The raccoon skin hats. Tail on the back of your head, weird. (laughs) Hello again, and welcome to episode 45 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that cracks open Billy Joel's rock'em, sock'em, action-packed hit song for the most surprising stories of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. And I am Tom Fordyce. How did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with Davy Crockett. Born on a mountaintop in Tennessee, green estate in the land of the free, raised in the woods so he knew every tree, he killed him a bar when he was only three. Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. He killed a bar. I don't even know what that means, Katie. What's I, a bar? I think he killed. I think he killed a bear. It's a bear. A bear. A bear, but it's a bar. I thought he'd killed a pub. Or that he was killed in a bar. Yeah, which made more sense. But when he was three, that seems like he hadn't had much chance to live. It's a stretch. So who was Davy Crockett? Now, I always get Davy Crockett mixed up with Daniel Boone, who was another famous early American frontiersman and folk hero. Um Probably because the same actor, Fess Parker, played both of them on American television. Now, I have, Tom, a very early memory of that song, Davy Crockett. It's probably like the first pop song I ever heard in my life as a two and a half, three year old, because uh, that was really big in the 60s. That show it was a Disney show. And I think originally it was from, it was aired in the 50s, and then it was rerun. And um, that was just a gosh darn jaunty song. Well, Katie, I know almost nothing, by contrast, about Davy Crockett. That song I first heard on the opening credits to Wes Anderson's Fantastic Mr. Fox, where Foxy is listening to it on a little sort of Walkman, and then he pops it off. And I don't know what significance it has to Wes Anderson or Fantastic Mr. Fox. But I think if you grow up in the UK, you sort of think of Davy Crockett as America's Robin Hood. Oh. Does that make any sense? Well, uh, I don't know. You see, I don't even know. I don't even know. We need to talk to somebody who knows. Well, Katie, I've got good news for you. Oh, good. Because we are joined today by Dr. Amy Davis. Amy is a film studies lecturer at the University of Hull and one of the most well-renowned Disney scholars. Welcome, Amy. Hi, it's good to be here. So, I mean, look, Katie, I need to answer that question first of all. Any similarity whatsoever, Amy, between Davy Crockett and Robin Hood? Not particularly. Okay. Um, I mean, Davy Crockett in real life 
Um, he actually, he was in the U.S. Uh, House of Representatives for a time. Uh, he had been a representative to the Tennessee state government as well before that. And he was someone who very much championed the rights of the poor and, you know, helping the poor and disadvantaged. But he, to my knowledge, never robbed the rich to get things for the poor. <laughs> well, I'm glad we've cleared that up, Katie. Where to start then with Davy Crockett? Amy, do you think we should start with the actual Davy Crockett um, all those years ago, born in 1786, or should we start with the Disney miniseries of the 1950s? I take your pick. I mean, obviously the real person came first and long before, but even in his own lifetime, he became very much a legend and there were all these very wild sort of tall tales and and sort of folkloric anecdotes and things about him that circulated, some from him, some from other people um, who wrote things and claimed that he had written them, that sort of thing. So there were plays about him, there were stories about him. So he was already very, very well known. And a lot of what was told about him was even in his own lifetime made up. That's so, so interesting to me that somebody in an era where, you know, there's not uh publicity. You know, it's not mm-hmm. social media. People aren't uh, necessarily reading a daily newspaper. How does word get around in ye olden days of this <laughs> strapping character? I mean, in all kinds of ways. As I say, there were a number of, of pamphlets and, and books and things written about him and by him. He himself in um, 1834 published a, a kind of autobiography uh, that he had help with, um, but that you know he wrote and actually did a book tour to help promote. I mean, people traveled you know, on the roads, they traveled on the rivers, and they carried stories and news and things like that with them. So word tended to travel pretty fast, and they didn't need an internet to do it. What was his gig? Like, what what was he up to? I know he's broadly described as a frontiersman, but, mm. you know, day to day, what are the activities of a frontiersman? What is he up to? Is he a pioneer? Is he a homesteader? <laughs> is he killing Indians? What's he doing? <laughs> Well, it depends on the time period you're talking about for him, because he he lived a very active, very, you know, in some ways, very colorful life. Um, He was born to a fairly poor family. They moved around quite a bit in primarily the sort of East Tennessee, and as parts of it still would have been in that period, North Carolina area of, of the Smoky Mountains and the Appalachian region. They, you know, his father had a number of attempts at, at farming, I believe for a while had a tavern, things like that. And he actually indentured Davy out when Davy was 12 to help pay off some of the family's debts and seems to have done this a couple of times. He also did a, a, an apprenticeship for several years as a hatter. So he tried a number of different jobs and things like that and seems to have have picked up all kinds of skills. And I think that probably helps him to be the sort of versatile person you need to be to survive in that environment. And he, you know, he's in various aspects of of militia and the U.S. military briefly for different things. And he had several businesses. (laughs) So he's he he was a busy guy. Yeah, incredible. Now, America was a very dynamic place at this time. And of course, 
we now understand fully that we had people of, uh, you know, European stock coming in and just helping themselves to the land of the indigenous people who lived there. Mm -hmm. And there was this sort of sense that, you know, oh, we just got to clear out, clear out these pesky Indians who are here. But he had a, a little bit of a more sophisticated approach. He was he was actually more collaborative, I gather, with the indigenous people. Yeah, and not just that. He, when he was a, a congressman, when he was the ten, one of the Tennessee representatives to the U.S. Congress, he actually vehemently opposed uh, Andrew Jackson's Indian removal bill. Um, it, he was unsuccessful in fighting it, but he fought very hard. And the chief of the Cherokee at the time, John Ross, personally actually wrote to Davy Crockett to thank him for his his help and his support, even if it ultimately hadn't been successful. Um, and you know, this is something that comes up, for instance, in the Disney uh, version that he's you know a friend of the Indians. Well, in real life, he actually was seen as and would have probably considered himself to be very much a friend of the Native American peoples. Why is it, Amy, that when Walt Disney is casting around for characters and ideas for a TV miniseries, that he settles upon Davy? Well, and first of all, I should say it's not a miniseries. Ah. The miniseries format begins in the 50s in Britain, but you don't really start to see that format picked up in the U.S. television uh, market until probably the late 60s. And the first big successful U.S. miniseries is Roots in uh, 77, I think. So the Disneyland TV show that had begun in October 1954, and that this was part of, it was an anthology series. And the anthology series was a hugely popular format for U.S. television in this period. So in fact, when they air the different episodes, they're actually spaced quite a bit apart and there are intervening episodes of Disneyland in between. But the whole thing, and you can tell by the name, in that 1954 first part of 55 period, one of its big jobs as a series is to promote Disneyland. And because, of course, Disneyland from the start is going to have a frontier land as a section of it, they need stories that sort of fit that theme to help promote the frontier land part of Disneyland. And Davy Crockett was already a very well-known and, and beloved folk figure, as well as a as historical figure. So he, he just made sense as someone to, to focus on for these stories, I think. Katie, I've got a list of the episode titles here, which I think give us a good flavour of what this TV show was like. The first one, Davy Crockett, Indian Fighter. Episode two, Davy Crockett goes to Congress. Episode three, Davy Crockett at the Alamo. Episode four, possibly the weakest in the series, Davy Crockett's keelboat races. And number five, Davy Crockett and the River Pirates. Well, you know what you're getting. You know there's always going to be Davy Crockett and then some sort of adventure. It could be outside uh, in a river or it could be indoors with some <laughs> congressman, which isn't which isn't quite so rock'em sock'em. Uh, I do want to talk about the nexus of this brand new medium of television and the insatiable hunger in the 50s and early 60s for stories about rugged, individualistic heroes. This was the era of cowboys, gunslingers, gangsters, and uh, Davy Crockett, apparently. I mean, was this an idea above and beyond Walt Disney's need to promote 
frontier land in Disneyland. Uh, was this Americans needing to hear flattering stories about themselves? What did it really say about America? Obviously, the Western obviously was a very popular film and television genre still in the 1950s um, and wouldn't really start to see its its fade from popularity for another another 10 years or so after this. All people of all nations like flattering stories about themselves. All nations can lay claim to some form of exceptionalism. Um, so yes, on the one hand, there is this idea of of course, Americans are going to want to hear nice things about how great and rugged and strong and smart and fun Americans are, because Davy Crockett is also meant to be quite a charming figure as well, you know, very funny, very glib. You know, he has all these wonderful little things. You know, I mean, our introduction to him in the first episode is when he has been interrupted trying to grin a, de- a bear to death. What? And we get Hang this- on, grin a bear, smile a bear to death. Yeah. And he, he claims he has done this successfully with a raccoon. Still a step and up, though. So he's, a bear. he's decides to try it on a bear. Later, he also decides to try it on one of the Indians that he encounters, and it very nearly gets him killed. Um, but yeah, he he says you can't resist a good grin, and he's gonna <laughs> he he'll try and grin it to death. How do you? I'm, more, I'm interested. How do you grin a bear to death? Like, what's the effect on the bear? It's supposed to charm them irresistibly so that they that the bear would lay down its life for you. Because in the story about the raccoon, that's what happens is he grins at it to the point where it just decides, you know, I got to give this guy what he wants. And it climbs into his game sack for him. Oh, my. He, uh, he expires <laughs> upon a flash of those pearly whites. It does seem that it is uh, the TV show was sort of a coded way to explore and perhaps exploit uh, these so-called American attributes. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, power over nature, domination over uh, indigenous people or, or raccoons and bears through, <laughs> the pow- the, through the power of flashing his dimples. Um, and I'm wondering if there was any, like, what was the reaction to the show? Did people just accept that they were watching virtually a documentary about... I don't- America? No. I, I think most people recognize that, first of all, Davy Crockett was a figure of folklore and tall tales. Okay. And the whole idea of the, the tall tale as a genre is about larger than life, exaggerated. You know, it's a kind of thing to sort of trick the, the, the newbie, the immigrant, the, the, la- the person lacking in knowledge of the culture. And Davy Crockett very much had a, has and had a place in that, that genre as well. But I think that the other side of the Western for Americans in this period was this was like this was the one of the few genres, you know, and arguably maybe the only genre that was very specifically definably American. You know, you can have comedies, mysteries, horror, every other genre take place anywhere. But the Western is very specifically limited to a time and a place. And in fact, defining Davy Crockett as a Western, which most people will do quite happily, it is technically kind of pushing it into the sort of limits of the genre because the majority of Westerns are set west of the Mississippi. We are, for most of this, apart from when he goes to the Alamo, we are east of the Mississippi in what in the 1810s, 20s, 30s was the Western U.S. And 
you know, time-wise, most Westerns are set after the U.S. Civil War, which ended in 1865, whereas, you know, Davy Crockett died in 1836, Mm. so well before the Civil War. So timeline-wise and technically location-wise, it is pushing it a bit, but accepted because in that time, that was the West. Wow, Katie, it's these stories that make me love this podcast and fill my head with thoughts and joy. Let's have some ads. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death of a Film Star. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs. You can find the old episodes, Amy, of Davy Crockett, the Disney series, on YouTube. And what struck me about them is the fact that Walt Disney himself introduced them. Is he, is he filmed in a library or a set of a library? And now, Walt Disney. Characteristic of and he sort of takes these almanacs down off a shelf as if he is blowing the dust off them and telling the stories that Davy has written down himself. Like Davy Crockett of Tennessee. They're filmed in a set based on his office. Um, it isn't his office, but it's it's meant to look like it. And of course, he introduced pretty much every episode of the Disneyland series, and often from that office set where he would take books off shelves or you know have different you know sort of contraptions and items and things to show the audience to talk about them in a kind of edutainment way, uh, which is a term that we believe he himself actually coined in a 1948 uh, magazine article that he wrote. He was very much about this whole, particularly in the 19, second half of the 40s into the 50s, this whole idea of edutainment. Um, so for him to sort of present this in this slightly more look at, you know, we're going back to America's past, to America's legends, and to take that book off the shelf and talk a bit about it. And of course, you know, the episodes sort of open and close with that opening of a, a Davy Crockett's journal, isn't it? Um that's all about that same idea that it's it's giving it a grounding in folklore history, but it's it's kind of at an intersection between those two. Forget the edu part of the edutainment. Let's talk about this merchandising bonanza <laughs> that happened with this show. All sorts of like uh, accessories and records, toys for the kids. Yeah, records, what, baseball card or not baseball cards, but playing you know. Trading cards, trading cards. cards, yeah, um, books, games. It's the frozen of its day in terms of merchandising. Um, in 1955 dollars, they did something in the region of 300 million dollars in merchandise sales for Davy Crockett. You know, it's it's in the trillions in modern dollars. Wow! And uh, so the star of Davy Crockett, Fess Parker, mm-hmm. did he see any of this cold hard cash? He did not. Um, It was deemed that because his contract was specifically with Walt Disney rather than with the Disney studio. Stitch um, up. Massive stitch up. Yeah. So he benefited in a lot of other ways, but it was initially a clause 
but then the company chose not to honor it, unfortunately. Wow. And so he became a star overnight, I imagine, from starring? Pretty much. Disney, Walt Disney actually was considering casting um, Buddy Epson that played uh, George in the film. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, casting him as Davy Crockett. And then the story is that he saw the 1954 sci-fi horror film Them about the giant giant ants. Yeah, Yeah, it's a brilliant film. Yeah, Yeah. And Fess Parker has a a small but very memorable role in it as a, a, I think he was a crop dusting pilot. Um, who spots these giant ants flying toward him in his when he's in his plane? And meanwhile, our, our sort of scientists and government people go to interview him about these giant ants because they're trying to trace him. And he has this whole scene where he's meant to be, you know, in a, a psych ward. Oh. <laughs> you know, and, and it's very, you know, he's not crazy, but he's obviously very upset. And he's, you know, full throttle in this scene, and he's, you know, he's great in it. And the story is that when Walt Disney saw. Fess Parker in that scene, he went, there's my Davy Crockett, and you know, and sought him out and hired him. And actually, partly, well, largely based on the success of the Davy Crockett episodes, uh, Fess Parker became the first adult to be given a, a, an acting contract, a long-term acting contract with the Disney studio. Just no cut of the merchandise. Just no cut in the merchandise. The thing I like about I'm just scrolling through shots of him online on the mainframe here. Um, and I love that he's introducing the rugged, sexy stubble look, <laughs> which, of course, he can get away with because he's in the frontier. And, yeah. you know, shavers are not readily available in the olden days. Um, and he also is working a very appealing, fringy buckskin look, which is a little... <laughs> Crosby, Stills, and Nash. You know, it's a little... Uh, Roger Daltrey as well, isn't it? A little Roger Daltrey there. Uh, so, well, maybe they're Davy Crockett. Yeah, mm-hmm. th- exactly. <laughs> um, but he has, I guess, uh, the fact that he was not known before he got this big role makes you really believe that he is Davy Crockett. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a similar thing, you know, years later when Mark Hamill becomes Luke Skywalker. Yeah, And he will always be, Fess Parker will always be Davy Crockett, you know, in most people's minds. And he seems to have pretty happily embraced that role through, you know, throughout his life. You know, it had brought him fame, it had brought him success. He, he in personal appearances, in interviews, was more than happy to kind of channel aspects of that Crockett persona that he had performed into, you know, these moments where he's meant to be himself. I do think it's, it does tickle me the fact that um, he was kind of happy to embrace this role because he got cast as Daniel Boone next, <laughs> uh, another frontiersman who I guess was not the same kind of person necessarily as Davy Crockett, no. but they tried to make him the same kind of person. Like what? what was the score there? Yeah, frontiersmen, rugged, helped to sort of break ground and, and bring, you know, settlers into, a, in his case, Kentucky, um, which, of course, is just north of Tennessee. So they, they do have things in common. And, yeah, casting Fess Parker to play Daniel Boone makes sense, because if you're doing everything you can to capitalize on the success of Davy Crockett, Walt Disney later commented that they were working on the third episode, you know, where Davy dies at the Alamo when the first one aired. And suddenly they had this monster hit on their hands that they just weren't expecting. And it was like, 
oh, wow. (laughs) And so they decide, well, we'll do something where we can essentially go, you know, everybody knew Davy Crockett died at the Alamo before that episode was ever aired. So let's just go further back on his timeline. And that's where you get the whole Mike Fink and the River Pirates um, episodes from. I see. Um, do we know actually what happened to the real Davy Crockett at the Alamo? It seems that there's there's um, mixed messages, Amy. Well, there's a lot of contradictory evidence as well as stories apparently on that. Um, some versions of the story are that he died fighting. Um, there are some other stories that he was part of those who surrendered at the end of the battle and then was executed shortly after. But, you know, we don't know. And I guess until somebody invents time travel, we will will we will never know for sure. It, it does seem like there's some debate about how deserving a figure Davy Crockett was uh, of for all this attention. The fact that he had a whole show made after him or made about him. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, he'd already been in as a character in various films, Um Going back to the silent era, I think there were three or four silent era films made where Davy Crockett appears as a character. And then another two or three uh, sound era ones to include one from 1950. Um, And the name is just right on the tip of my tongue, but it's it's a you know, it had Davy Crockett in the name of this 1950 film. So he's he was already a well-known and established character. And so it's kind of like, well, deserving is is a, a sort of odd way to put it, I think. And there was controversy on this very idea in the 1950s when people made these kinds of comments that, you know, he was a popular figure. He was a well-known figure. Why wouldn't Disney do something about him? The, the whole sort of in the opening credit sequence to the Disneyland series, the Frontierland bit was always introduced as being about uh, tall tales, or tales tall and true or something like that. And Davy Crockett is absolutely the definition of tall tales and true tales combined. Sure. So he he makes absolute sense to, and he is the inaugural, his stories are the inaugural Frontierland episodes for the series. Oh, so I've just discovered that the name of that 1950 film is Davy Crockett Indian Scout. That's it, yep. Davy Crockett Indian Scout. I've not seen it. Don't know how good or bad it is. How important was the success of the Davy Crockett stuff to Walt Disney, Amy? I think very successful, or very important uh, that it was so successful. Um, During the opening day broadcast of uh, the opening of Disneyland on 17th of July of 55, when Frontierland is open, um, Fess Parker and uh, Buddy Ebsen are there as Davy and George. Now everybody look over in that direction. I think we're going to see Davy Crockett very shortly. They actually get a huge amount of airtime to include a whole song and dance number uh, with a whole you know sort of cast of extras around them, and that's the only instance where that happens during that broadcast. Um, some have said that they get as much airtime as Walt Disney does during the opening day broadcast. Hi, Davey! And Russell, too. Come on over here, fellas. You're a little late getting in. So this, this signals, you know, plus all the merchandise sales which were ongoing at that point, it really does signal that this is hugely important for Disney in terms of, of financial side of things, synergistic advertisement side of things, you know, the, the series advertises the parks and that advertises the merchandise and that advertises the parks and, you know, everything kind of works together quite effectively. And, of course, it has had a, a 
very, very long run in terms of its popularity, I think partly because the parents who, as kids, were part of that Davy Crockett craze wanted their own kids to enjoy it. Um, you mentioned you saw it in its rebroadcast in color in the 60s. Um, I probably first experienced it um, in the early 80s on the Disney Channel uh, when that first launched. And, you know, there is this idea, and I've boomer parents, so, you know, there is this idea of you want to share with your kids the things that you enjoyed. And I think that helps keep it going. Um, but as I say, he was already a well-known figure. And of course, I mean, recently, uh, sort of to get ready for today, I rewatched all the Davy Crockett stuff on Disney+. Plus. You know, it's it's all there. And does and it still hold up? Yeah, I guess it's it just depends on your taste. Some people will really like it. Some people not so much. And that would have, you know, that would have been the case then. I was talking to my mother the other day about it. Um, and she's, you know, she remembered it coming out in 55, you know, 54, 55. She would have been about seven or so at that point. And, you know, sort of others around her really enjoying it and her being a bit eh about the whole thing, you know. And what was, why were people so crazed about it? Like, what does she remember thinking about her silly friends who loved it? I think it was fun. It was exciting. Fess Parker, you already mentioned, you know, with his, his stubble and all that going on, he is, is a, a good looking guy. Uh, and that never hurts, does it? Um, you know, the stories were exciting and adventurous. There were things in them that, even today, for all that there are certainly problematic aspects, you know, particularly in terms of, of race and colonialism and so forth, um, that Davy is he is positioned even for the 50s as being someone who is much more egalitarian than would be the norm. So I think that kind of helps because remember in the background of all of this is the civil rights movement and, and so forth. Um, there is this real interest in characters who are, you know, able to hold their own tough, you know, they can do what they need to do, but who are ultimately pacifist. And when we first meet Davy in the first episode, he's not out scouting for the enemy. He's not out fighting or anything like that. He's hunting and he's hunting to help provide food for the militia. In real life, he preferred to do the hunting and all support stuff rather than the actual fighting. And there is this idea of a kind of de-escalation away from that, you know, the soldier into the man of peace. And that fits quite nicely with Davy as a persona. Katie, I watched this uh, first episode, Davy Crockett, Indian Fighter, the other day. You can find the whole thing on YouTube. And the thing that struck me about it, obviously it's a little bit cheesy because of the time it's filmed, I thought it would fit in with this whole idea of America has come out of the Second World War and is trying to be um, the world's peacekeeper. And I thought Davy Crockett would be, um, I thought he would respect authority and sort of the authority figures in Davy Crockett would be portrayed as heroes. But from the bit I saw, um, when he is fighting a bear in a bush, um, you just see the bush shaking all the time and then he comes out and then George no, literally pushes him back in and you just see, see the, the bush shaking again <laughs> Andrew Jackson is the um, the general and he is portrayed as a sort of cartoonish character so actually it was quite anti-authoritarian so he's a bit of a buffoon he, Andrew yeah, Jackson so the, gen the general is a buffoon which I hadn't expected 
Oh, okay. And that ties in with a little bit of historical accuracy because, mm. Amy, you were saying that uh, he was against Andrew Jackson's uh, initiatives, anti-Indigenous yeah. people initiatives in Congress. Yeah. And um, and a number of other Jackson policies when Jackson became president. Um, I think it was Polk who was actually president when Crockett first went to Congress and served a spell, to quote the song again. But um, Jackson becomes president during that time, and he really vehemently disagreed with a lot of Jackson's politics, and he ran against Jackson's nephew-in-law, I think, um, for political office a couple of times. But his opposition to Jackson's policies is ultimately what lost him uh, his, his seat in Congress. Well, I've absolutely loved this insight into Davy Crockett because, I mean, I just thought he's obviously a, a great uh, hero in a narrative about uh, being a self-sufficient, taking care of business kind of guy. But the fact that he was, as you say, uh, sensitive to the people around him, uh, the indigenous people, um, you know, he had a sense of his place holistically in the world. So he wasn't just about domination. So this has been a wonderful insight, Dr. Amy Davis. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been good to talk. And uh, Katie, because this is the first of our what we might call a Walt Hattrick, next week we'll be talking about Peter Pan. In three weeks' time, we'll be talking about Disneyland. So Amy, perhaps you might want to join us for that and give us your wonderful insight oh, once more. yeah, yeah. I'd be delighted to. Disneyland's one of my favorite things to talk about. Perfect. It's a date. It's a date. <laughs> so, Katie, that was uh, Davy Crockett, and I am looking forward to singing the theme tune one more time before we go. Oh, you love to sing. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that Billy did the right thing, including Davy, Davy Crockett, Crockett, King of the World Frontier. Uh, I can't get down to those low depths that you're getting to. Uh, he didn't make a boo-boo. He knew what he was doing, old Billy. I have a feeling that he, much like me and my older siblings, was riveted to that television set and loved that song. We love that song. That song is irresistible. Yeah. And you know, the other thing I've suddenly realized, Katie, in the way that I like to reference 80s pop music on this podcast, I've been thinking of Adam Ant. Oh. Every time I've heard the words King of the World Frontier, oh. I've heard some double Burundi drumming. Yes, and I've seen have. a man with a white stripe across his nose um, dancing around in an open neck shirt. Well, it's hard for me to even argue that Billy ever does anything but the right thing. Uh, but here, I think this is a sentimental favorite. I don't think that this is some sort of big, like, uh, you know, we need to include um, a president or a pop star. I think this is just something that's a little bit closer to his heart, something that he would have been watching on the television set, maybe a 12-inch widescreen in black and white back home in New York. Makes perfect sense to me, Katie. Yes. Um, next week, we continue <laughs> our Disney theme because we are talking about... Peter Pan! Tremendous. And in the meantime, if you would like another history podcast to listen to, we've got one to recommend you. It's called The History of England, and it's, it's hosted by David Crowther. It turns out that David's a firm believer that drama, hate, love, war, death, destruction, heroism, religion, art, literature is everything that is packed in, in between the little weavings and the nooks and the crannies of England. And that's why he wants to talk about it. Uh, apparently, it involves dancing as well. I don't know how, how he's going to work that in, but dancing is a part of the English heritage. 
That's great news, Katie. Um, all you need to do to find it is search for the history of England in your podcast app. In the meantime, if you want to follow us and subscribe, please do at Spread That Fire. Email us any thoughts, suggestions for future guests. Maybe you are indeed a future guest. The email address is... I can't wait to meet you. Fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. Get in touch. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Steve Coe was larger than life. He was a drug smuggler, and he was in the best place to do it. Miami in the 1980s. Smuggling along the secret bayous and mangrove islands has been a craft handed down from generation to generation. But none of this tops his most outrageous story. On one particular drug run, Steve ended up with four colorful ceramic tiles that fit together like puzzle pieces. This piece of art was made by Pablo Picasso, who gave it to Ernest Hemingway. And then it was sent to Pablo Escobar. Or at least, that's what he told everyone. I don't think that your story is real. Forget about it. When I first heard this story, I thought it was probably bullshit. But the more I looked, the more I found. I'm Leah Carroll, and from something else, this is Hemingway's Picasso. Out now. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II. Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. 
Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.